Welcome to the ArchMI Podcast, featuring our senior customer trainer, Blaine Rita. Arch Mortgage Insurance Company, or ArchMI, is a leading provider of mortgage insurance, or MI, in the United States. Our competitive pricing tool, ArchMI RateStar, is the leading risk-based pricing platform in the industry, providing rates based on a thorough understanding of the underlying risk. Here's your host, Blaine Rada. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Blaine Rada with ArchMI. These podcasts are an opportunity for me to share some of my perspective that I've gained after over 30 years of experience in the mortgage industry. But most importantly, they're really designed to help you separate and differentiate yourself from all of your competition and all of the choices that realtors or borrowers have in choosing a mortgage lender. So some of the things you can expect is that they will be conversational. They are not scripted. I certainly have a plan for what I'd like to share with you, but I'm never quite sure exactly how I'll say it or how long it might go. Um, They're high content. I do put a lot into these. That's just my nature. I have a hard time just giving people fluff um, or not giving any context or background to what I'm sharing. So there tends to be a lot of information, which means you probably shouldn't be doing three or four things at the same time while you listen. Or you might have to re-listen to some of these to really get the, the value out of them that, you, uh, that you're looking for. And they tend to have a sales focus. You know, my thought is that I'm primarily speaking to people who consider themselves salespeople. Although, honestly, a lot of the ideas that I talk about would be very appropriate for people who aren't in sales. But because they have a sales focus, you need to understand my sales worldview. And I share this at the beginning of every podcast because it, it, it literally influences everything that I share. And so you need to understand where I'm coming from when it, when it relates to sales. And my sales worldview is that selling is not about getting the sale, right? That selling is really about establishing if you're the best fit. And the difference between those two is that when selling is about the sale, we tend to manipulate. Whereas when selling is about establishing if we're the best fit, we tend to act out of service, And of course, in doing that, my assumption is you'll make plenty of sales, right? So the objective is the same. You're still going to do a lot of business. It's just how are you going to get that business? And that's my worldview. And you may not agree with that, and certainly not everybody does, but it's important that you at least know that that's where I'm coming from. So back to all this information that you're going to hear, I want to make sure that you know, it's it's information that creates some type of insight for you. Not necessarily my insights, not necessarily the way that I say things, but what that triggers in your own mind. So be, be thinking about, be noticing the insights that you're having as you hear this information. And then by all means, have it translate into some type of impact. For us to just spend some time together and say, well, that was interesting, is really not the best use of either of our time. So I want to make sure that all of these ideas that I share, that there's something in it that leads to some sort of measurable change in how you do what you do and the results that you get. But that responsibility is obviously on you. I can only share the information and it's up to you to actually you know, notice what's significant and do something with it. So let's get on to today's topic. I'd like to talk about um, what I'm calling lessons from the courtroom. Now, I need to make a disclaimer, and I don't usually do this at the beginning of these podcasts, but I think for this one in particular, it's important that I do. Because I'm going to be talking about um, things that affect your ability to get loans approved or to get exceptions done, right? In other words, I'm really going to be talking today about how you can do more business, but I'm in no way representing 
Arch, for instance. I'm in no way representing how we would at Arch look at any particular loan that you would send us or what experience you will have with your own underwriters or investors who purchase your loans. I'm simply giving you my philosophy uh, based on you know some interesting conclusions that I've drawn over the years that I've been in this industry. So just putting a disclaimer out there that I'm, I'm not only not telling you how to do what you do, which is always my intention, but I'm also not even making any kind of representations as to how this information will, will work for you. Okay, I just think it's important for me to say that. So I, I actually think that you can draw a lot of parallels between what goes on in a courtroom and making loan decisions. And if you think about a courtroom, even if you've never been in one, and many of you might have served on a jury, hopefully you were on that side of the courtroom, but maybe not, Um, you, you might have some courtroom experience, you might just have seen stuff on TV or in movies, you'll notice that what happens in a courtroom is fascinating. There's all this information, right, kind of in the middle of the courtroom, and one side of that courtroom is going to point to that information and say that that information proves innocence. And the other side of that courtroom is going to point to the same information and say that it proves guilt. And it's up to a judge and or a jury to ultimately decide, does that information prove innocence or guilt? That sounds a lot like what could happen with a loan file to me. You've got this information in a loan file that some people could look at and say, approve. And other people could look at the same information and say, decline. And then you've got your various people that are involved in trying to, you know, make the case or try to influence the decision. So again, I'm kind of drawing this parallel between what happens in a courtroom and what happens in in our everyday life as mortgage lenders. Now, I want to introduce you to a man by the name of Jerry Spence. I'm not literally introducing you to him. He's not here with me. Uh, This is Jerry spelled with a G. Jerry Spence is a retired attorney. And if you look him up on Wikipedia, um, it says something that is very compelling. It says that he has never lost a criminal case, never lost a criminal case, and it gets even more impressive, either as a prosecutor or a defense attorney. So on either side of that courtroom, he has never lost. I find that amazing. I, I can't imagine that there's very many attorneys on the whole planet that can make that claim. He's actually very famous for the Karen Silkwood case. Uh, I won't get into the details of the Karen Silkwood case, but it turned into a movie called Silkwood starring Meryl Streep. So at the time, it was kind of a big deal. You may have never heard of it, but I'm just trying to give you some sense of who this guy Jerry Spence is. Now, we're going to come back to him toward the end, but I want to bring his philosophies into this conversation when we talk about what I would call winning exceptions. I mean, if this is a person who has never lost a case, no matter what side they were arguing, that's like, that sounds like someone who can help us understand how to, how to get loans uh, that are an exception in our industry approved. So I want to come back to him. But before we go to, to Jerry Spence and what I learned in reading his books and trying to just understand how he was so successful, I want to talk about another experience that I had personally in this event called the Great American Think-Off. Now, I'll bet you've never heard of the Great American Think-Off. It's actually a national philosophy competition that's been held for over 25 years in this little small town in northern Minnesota called New York Mills. And in essence, what this organization does is every January, they put a question out to the nation. And the question is one that you're asked to pick a side on. 
So when I first heard about this event, it was back in the year 2005, and the question that they posed to the nation that year was competition or cooperation, which one benefits society more? Competition or cooperation, which benefits society more? Now, that's a really interesting question. You probably have kind of like an immediate reaction to that. Oh, I think it's this, or you think it's that. But I'm going to assure you, the more you wrestle with that, the more you're going to say things like, well, it depends, or, well, I could see where in some situations it's competition and other situations it's cooperation. Hey, that's not what the event is asking for, right? The event is asking for you to make a decision, choose one. So if you want to actually participate in the event, What you do is you write an essay. It can't be more than 750 words. By the way, 750 words, even if you don't like writing, is hardly anything. And in only 750 words, you have to pick your side and make a compelling argument for why you believe that side of the question is the more important one. So I was fascinated with this idea of wrestling with a difficult question and then trying to find the words to articulate my point of view. Again, does this sound like skills and traits that could help us in our business when we're trying to, you know, make our case, so to speak, for how we feel about a particular loan? I think it does. So what happens is the the think-off gets hundreds or thousands, it depends on the year and how popular the question is, but let's say they get thousands of essays submitted and they will choose four. The, the judging committee or however they set that up will choose four of these essays, two that argued one side and two that argued the other. And they will bring those four people to a live debate every June, kind of around Father's Day, in New York Mills, Minnesota. And those four people in this state-of-the-art auditorium with hundreds of people from the surrounding communities coming to this event every year, those four people will basically debate the question, and the audience will ultimately determine that year's America's Greatest Thinker. Wow. It is like the most American thing that you can possibly think of doing. Ordinary citizens wrestling with a difficult question in front of a live audience in a debate format, and that audience has to figure out who made the most compelling case. So there's a lot of things about this experience that I had back in 2005 that I could pull from and share with you, but I'm just going to, you know, pass on a few nuggets in this podcast and probably you'll mention it in some other podcasts as well. So let's go back to this idea of the essay and what does this mean for you and this conversation that we're having today. So I believe that there's a kind of three steps, three mental skills three mental muscles, if you will, that I encourage you to develop and work out. So like any muscle, if you don't work it out and you don't use it, it atrophies. However, if you do exercise it, if you do work it out, it gets stronger. And so I'm looking at these three things as mental muscles that often we don't think about or use, and I'm going to encourage you to do not that. I'm going to encourage you to actually use them. And let me just give you what the three are, and then I'll tie them into this great American think-off concept. So the three skills that I'm suggesting you get good at are to, number one, pick a lane. Pick a lane. Number two, back it up. Back it up. And number three, appreciate the other side. Appreciate the other side. So picking a lane. In the great American think-off, 
There was that question about competition or cooperation, which one benefits society more. I had to pick one. If I wanted to enter this event, I had to write an essay after I had picked one of these and in 750 words make a compelling case for why what I believed was, you know, the most the most compelling choice. I would encourage you to go to the ThinkOff website, which is thinkoff.org, where you will see the questions that they have asked going all the way back over the 25 plus years that this event has been going on. And I mean, just ponder some of these questions or bring them up at family gatherings. I mean, these are questions that are not easy to answer, and it really forces you to develop some mental discipline around this idea of picking a lane. Why am I mentioning this? Because we have to approve or decline every single application, and we want to build the mental muscles necessary to discern all of the facts and make the information. I know we have guidelines, and we have automated underwriting, and we have all these tools that help us make decisions on loans, but this still is a business about assessing risk, and ultimately, even with all the technology, a human being still has to be inserted into that process, and these are the mental skills that help us do that. All right, the back it up, that was the second, the second of the three that I suggested. Once you get good at picking a lane, you now need to be able to explain or express to concisely articulate your point of view. Well, in the think-off, that's the debate. And there's two rounds to the debate. It's really interesting. The first round is the people debating each other who were on the same side. So remember, there's four finalists here, two on one side of the question, two on the other. And the first round of the debate is the people who agreed with each other actually debating. And as, as strange as that sounds, the reason that they do that is so that the audience can decide which of those two people who are basically voting for the same side, which of those two people made the most compelling case. Right? So they do that for each of the sides of the question, and then those two winners from round one meet in the final debate, where now you've got both sides of the question being debated in front of this audience in New York Mills, Minnesota. Okay, so once you have gotten good at, at picking a lane, right, being decisive, making a decision, now you have to get good at backing it up. And this is, you know, not only is it not always easy to make a decision, it's especially not always easy to be, to be able to explain it. Like to be able to back it up, like why did you why did you make that decision, right? That's that's the skill that I'm suggesting that you get good at. Now the third thing that I mentioned, actually before I get to the third one, let me give you an example that comes to mind. Um, a loan officer, um, I asked a loan officer once many years ago, why did you calculate this income the way that you calculated it, right? So they had made a decision about how they would calculate someone's income, and. I obviously didn't see it necessarily that way, and so I questioned them as to why they did that. Why did you calculate the income the way that you did? And their response back to me was, because that's the only way they would qualify. So, you know, bravo for trying to get the loan to work. <laughs> However, is that reasoning or is that just a reason? See, that's not very compelling. Like, would that hold up in court? You know, Your Honor, ladies and gentlemen of the jury... I believe that these people are innocent because that's just the right decision to make. No, that's not going to hold up, right? So backing it up is where you employ reasoning, right? So whether that be logic, whether that be facts, that's the skill that I'm asking you to think about. How, how do you back things up? Now, appreciating the other side is acknowledging that there will always be another opinion. 
There will always be somebody who doesn't see it the way that you do. And that happens a lot in our business where people disagree on whether a loan is a good loan or not, or whether you should require additional documentation or not, or how to calculate someone's income because it, it, is, it is flexible and it moves around a lot. And there's disagreements on how to average it or how to come up with the right number. So there is always going to be this other side. And what I experienced in the Great American Think-Off, even though it's a debate, it's nothing like, say, political debates that you see on TV. Because political debates, honestly, are no longer debates. They're performances. I mean, half the time they don't even answer the question that they're asked, and it's usually about knocking somebody else down so that somehow that makes you look better. I mean, that's really, in my opinion, not what a debate is. That, That kind of debating, to me, actually shows ignorance whereas a true debate shows knowledge, where you're really articulating your point of view based on whatever it's based on. Um, But there'll always be this other side, right? And it's important that you at least are willing to listen to what the other side is. Because often what happens when two opposing views come together and they really listen to each other is a third option appears. And you've probably experienced that in trying to make a loan work. You've got two sides, you know, one that thinks the loan is just fine and the other that thinks the loan is not fine. And as you talk that through, you realize there is a middle ground. There is a way where we can maybe get more information or maybe change things in such a way that we can actually still do the loan, but we just can't do it as is. We have to make these modifications to it. That's that kind of cooperative process that I'm calling appreciate the other side. In fact, there's an interesting book. I haven't read it, but I'll just give you the title. Um, I haven't read it because it's really about politics, and I just have enough politics in my life. I don't need to spend time reading more about it. But the book title, just the book title, says everything about where I'm going with this. It's called, I Think You're Wrong, But I'm Listening, by Sarah Holland. I think you're wrong, but I'm listening. That's a good place to find yourself. Okay, so let me just backtrack a little bit because I've been doing a lot of talking here and I want to make sure you're following my thoughts. What I'm suggesting is that in making your case in our business, we need to get good at three things. We need to get good at picking a lane. We need to get good at backing it up, which is basically reasoning. Not just reasons, but reasoning. And we need to get good at appreciating the other side and realizing there may actually be a third choice besides just the two that are being debated. Okay, so let me bring Jerry Spence back into the conversation, the retired attorney that I mentioned a little bit earlier. I want to bring him into this because there's also this idea that I like about winning exceptions. Like how is it that a borrower can go to one lender and get declined and go to another lender and nothing changes? Right? None of the facts change, none of the terms of the loan changes, and yet they get approved. Like, How does that happen? Well, the second lender has abilities and skills that the first lender didn't, assuming everybody's following the same rules right? and nothing has changed. And so I call this winning exceptions. And when I, when I read some of the books that Jerry Spence has, has written and I tried to understand how was he so successful in the courtroom, I realized that he had some skills that translate into our business. One of them I've already mentioned which is the ability to form a line of reasoning where you lead the judge and the jury along a storyline that leads to your conclusion. Now, again, you're not always going to get people to agree with you, but you at least have to have that ability to come up with reasoning. 
And the second skill in a courtroom, which could often make or break a case, would be the gathering of evidence. Well, we don't have evidence in our world, but we do have something that's kind of the same. We just call it something different. You know what I'm talking about, right? Documentation. So what I'm encouraging is, a, is now another skill, which is to learn how to strategically document. And what I mean by strategically document is to document your loan in a way that backs up your reasoning, as if you were a courtroom attorney making your case. Your greatest chance of winning exceptions is to be able to form a line of reasoning that people will see and agree with and to back that reasoning up with documentation. Without those two things, we really don't have the ability to make exceptions. All right, so what are some key takeaways from all of this? I do think there is a formula for making your case and and winning exceptions, right? I've kind of drawn a parallel between what happens in courtrooms And what happens in mortgage lending, I've talked about this event, this philosophy competition called the Great American Think-Off. And from that, I come up with specific concepts or skills that I'm encouraging you to develop called, you know, pick a lane and back it up and appreciate the other side. And know that if you're trying to make an exception, you're going to have to develop your skills of reasoning. And you're going to have to learn how to strategically document in a way that backs up that reasoning. You know, unlike Jerry Spence, you won't win all of your cases, right? You will not, you will not always get your way. I, I don't think our industry is, is ever going to allow that. Um, in fact, there's a, a famous case called Baby M. Many of you on the call will be far too young to know anything about this, and some of you might actually remember. This is back from the 1980s. Baby M was the first time that a surrogacy was challenged in court. So basically, a couple was unable to have a child, and so they hired a woman to be an egg donor and to be the surrogate mother, you know, to to carry the baby to term, to deliver the baby, and then turn it over to the biological father and his wife. And so there was a contract that was executed between the biological father and his wife and the surrogate mother, and she was going to be paid a certain amount of money to basically have a baby for them. Well, within 24 hours of her having this baby... She wanted it back. And I can't even imagine, right? I mean, I can't even imagine what it would be like to become pregnant and to carry a baby to term and to deliver the baby into the world and then to say, you know, it's not mine. I have to give it away. I would imagine that would be a very difficult decision for someone to make. And so she wanted the baby back. And so this went to court. And so, of course, what's the court looking out for here? The courts are trying to look out for the best interests of the child as well as interpreting the law. And so the first court that it went to was the New Jersey Superior Court, and they basically awarded custody to the biological father. They said the surrogate mother has no rights, a contract is a contract, and it's in the best interest of the child. So that wasn't what the surrogate mother wanted, so they appealed it, and they appealed it to the Supreme Court of New Jersey. The Supreme Court of New Jersey said Sur- surrogacy contracts cannot even be executed. They're invalid. In other words, the whole idea of somebody signing a piece of paper saying that they're going to turn over a child nine months from now is ridiculous. Like, you can't even enforce something like that. And so they ended up pushing the, the case to a family court, And the family court said, well, custody should belong to the biological father, but this surrogate mother should have visitation rights, 
right? That she should have some involvement in the child's life. So that's where it stood for 18 years until baby M, Melissa, became of age and could make her own decision. So now, what does baby M do? All these courts have done what they thought would be in the best interest of the child. What does baby M decide she wants? When Melissa turned 18, she said, I basically want no relationship with the surrogate mother. My family is my biological father and his wife. And so she terminated any parental rights that the surrogate mother would have had. Interesting idea about everybody looking out to make the right decision, right? All these different people weighing in, and yet ultimately, do we really always win? Do we really always even know what the right decision is? I, I don't think so. I think there's still, you know, room for, room for growth. So in that spirit, there's a, a French essayist by the, no, by the name, excuse me, French essayist. That's hard for me to say. French essayist. There we go. A French essayist by the name of Joseph, Joseph Jobert. People that know French will not be happy with that pronunciation. But Joseph Jobert said that the aim of argument or of discussion should not be victory, but progress. The aim of argument or of discussion should not be victory, but progress. That was my intention today, to give you some tools, some, some things to think about, some mental disciplines, so that we can make progress in making better decisions in our industry. All right, so... Do something with this information. Please take a step, right? Use it. Apply it. Figure out what had meaning for you and have it fundamentally change the way that you do business and, and the results that you get. Don't forget to tell a friend. Uh, you know, Spread the news. Pass it along. Make sure people know about the podcast. If you find value in listening, there's going to be lots of other people that will find value in it too. So please share, share the wealth. And talk with us at Arch. We're very interested in helping you do more business and helping you do better business. So make sure you're in communication with your account manager. And of course, if you have any feedback about these podcasts in particular, we're always uh, open to your suggestions and feedback. That is it for this episode. I appreciate the time that you've invested. I hope that you found it worthwhile. This is Blaine Rader with ArchMI. Thank you for listening. Arch Capital Group Limited's U.S. mortgage insurance operation, ArchMI, is a leading provider of private insurance covering mortgage credit risk. Headquartered in Greensboro, North Carolina, ArchMI's mission is to protect lenders against credit risk while extending the possibility of responsible homeownership to qualified borrowers. ArchMI's flagship mortgage insurer, Arch Mortgage Insurance Company, is licensed to write mortgage insurance in all 50 states, the District of Columbia, and Puerto Rico. For more information, please visit ArchMI.com. ArchMI is a marketing term for Arch Mortgage Insurance Company and United Guarantee Residential Insurance Company. All rights reserved.